Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. If the term employment equity means something to you, that we all, men and women, people with disabilities, people of color, that everybody has the right to be treated in an equitable manner in the workplace, then thank Rosalie Abella. She's the judge who came up with that idea when she chaired our Royal Commission on Equality and Employment in 1984. Canada understood, before we actually put it in the language of case law, that difference doesn't exclude you. I think that's why Canada does multiculturalism better than any country in the world, because we're quite comfortable with joining mainstreams based on differences. That idea of employment equity seems obvious now. But back in the 80s, it was a groundbreaking idea in law that we all, as a group, as a society, should treat each other with fairness in the workplace as much as anywhere else. Rosalia Bella once said, We strengthened our democracy by enhancing and guaranteeing its constituent rights and freedoms, and we enhanced our country by strengthening and guaranteeing its democratic values. I think we have so far really protected core values that are represented in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I think the greatest moment in Canadian history is 1982 when we got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Rosalie Abella went on to a stellar career as a Canadian Supreme Court Justice, and her small L liberal and progressive views on how to interpret our Constitution and Charter of Rights and Freedoms have helped shape the Canada we live in today. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. A couple of years ago, Rosie, as many people called her, retired from the Supreme Court of Canada, much honoured both here and around the world for her groundbreaking work in many areas, and in particular, human rights law. But she's still a voice worth listening to. Today on Ideas, Rosalie Bella in conversation with an old friend psychiatrist and mental health advocate David Goldblum at the Stratford Festival. We're calling this program Judge Rosie. This seat was designed for boys. (laughs) Well, good morning, everybody. And my guest today, as you can already tell, is the honorable and mainly fabulous Rosalie Abella. Number one, I only interview people who I've known for a very long time. Number two, I only interview people that I like and love. And so over the last many years, I've turned to Rosie intermittently for wise counsel, and she's turned to me intermittently for very cheap jokes. (laughs) And Rosie, the theme of the festival season for 2022 is is new beginnings. And when I think of 
the arc of your life personally and professionally, it's hard not to think of a more apt subject heading. So let's start with the personal about your parents, about their journey through the Holocaust and coming to Canada with you, because I think it's a starting point that our audience needs to know. When I look back on on my life um, and see how joyful it really was and to think that it emerged from the tragedy of the Second World War, I was born in a displaced persons camp in Stuttgart in 1946. My parents spent most of the war in concentration camps. Their two-year-old son was killed. My father's whole family was killed. And my mother and her mother survived Buchenwald. My father was in Theresienstadt. When the war ended, and these are all stories that at the time were narratives, but I didn't appreciate until I was older how extraordinary the people behind the stories were telling me these stories that just rocked my my soul. So when the war was over, my mother went back to the city they had lived in and found out that my father was in Theresienstadt, and they were not releasing anybody from Theresienstadt because there was a typhoid epidemic. So she rode the rails down to uh, Theresienstadt. She snuck in with a garbage detail, got him out, They ended up in Berlin, and from Berlin went to Stuttgart, where my father learned English. He was a graduate of the Jagiellonian University, had a master's in law, which was unusual because Jews, there was a quota on the number of Jews who were allowed in, but he he graduated and then never practiced. It was eight years, four years of Jagiellonian University, and then four years, two years clerking, two years working in a law firm, and then the war started. So after the war, he, when he went to Germany, he applied to the Allies, to the Americans, to see if he could work as a lawyer. He passed some tests and defended displaced persons in the camps in southwest Germany, Stuttgart and in Munich, and then kept trying to come to Canada. For some reason, he didn't want to go to the States, and I remember badgering him for years, why didn't you go to New York? I mean, that's where Broadway is. Was not interested, wanted to come to Canada. What was the lure of Canada for him? He was meeting a lot of Americans, and he loved the Americans, but it felt like a very exuberant environment from the people that he was meeting, and he wanted peace. And Canada seemed just academically like a very nice place to raise a family. He had me in 1946 and then my sister in 1948. And as you know from Irving Abella and Harold Roper's book, None is Too Many, Jews were not allowed in. So he tried. (laughs) There was a man named, it doesn't matter, who was looking for furriers to come to Canada. They were not looking for lawyers to come to Canada. And my father told me he failed the test because Fetterman said, let me see your hands. And my father showed him his hands. He said, they don't look like a furrier's hands. My father said, well, I've been in concentration camps, so it doesn't show. He said, okay, how would you stretch a piece of fur? And my father said he went like that. (laughs) And Fetterman said, get out. So he eventually got in as a shepherd and as a men's underwear tailor's cutter. They came to Canada in 1950. He went to the Law Society and said, how do I, what test do you want me to write so I can apply to be a lawyer? They said, none. You have to be a citizen. 
That would have taken five years. My grandmother lived with us. My sister, two years younger, lived with us. So he became an insurance agent. So what is my story? My story is growing up in Canada, growing up in Toronto at St. Clair and Winona, always thinking that I had the happiest home of anyone I knew. My parents often, I I kept asking questions because I couldn't process what they'd been through. So from the mundane, like, how did you wash your hair, to how did you feel when you found out your son was killed? And they always answered me. So there was no hovering demon. Everything was open. And they encouraged me, and they weren't smothering, and they weren't fearful. So I said, I want to be a lawyer like Daddy, when he came home and said he couldn't be a lawyer. I said, then I'm going to be a lawyer. I had no idea what it meant. And they said, of course. So I grew up thinking there were no barriers for women, no barriers for Jewish people, no barriers except hard work at school. So I was, I was the kid who asked for extra homework. And I practiced piano two hours every day and got my ARCT because I knew it was important to my parents. And then I went to university and discovered boys. And that was it for piano. Or studying. Until I wanted to get into law school, so I spent one year studying really hard. So what were, I, I keep thinking that, in a way, my childhood was the phoenix that rose from their despair, but there was no despair that I ever saw. There was just a sense of gratitude to Canada, how lucky we were, and the journey began, and it never, never stopped being a happy moment of opportunity, series of moments of opportunities. But I was fearless because no one could ever do to me what they had already done to my family. So I just thought everything was possible in Canada. And you know what? It is. Well, you are the living proof. But I wonder how much your identities as an immigrant, as a woman, as a Jew, in no particular order has influenced your perception of law and justice, and, and are those two different things? Well, justice to me is the application of law to life. I mean, laws are just rules. It's one of the reasons I'm so uncomfortable with the concept of rule of law. First of all, I don't know what it means. Everybody throws it around as if it's this avatar of democracy. But, you know, Germany was under the rule of law, and it You had genocidal discrimination, and apartheid was under the rule of law. And uh, segregation was under the rule of law. So I don't understand the attraction. Different people use it different ways. The president of China uses it. I remember Mubarak used it in Egypt. So it just never struck me as being the appropriate symbol of what the post-Second World War environment was supposed to be. So I see it as the rule of justice. So there is a relationship, but it isn't inherent in law. Justice is the transcendent vehicle for me. And how do you operationalize justice then? Well, I think one of the great values of being a Canadian is that you understand inherently that we are the product of two different groups at the constitutional bargaining table. There, of course, were indigenous people here before any of us were here. But the bargain that created the institutions of this country were French and English. And so from the start, 
Canada was a country of dualities, at least, mm -hmm. and learned to understand that you could be different and equal, which gave us an introductory sense of equality being not just the same as everyone, which is the American melting pot, assimilationist, unreachable and unattainable goal. How can you be the same if you're a different color, if you're a different gender? So Canada understood, before we actually put it in the language of case law, that difference doesn't exclude you. I think that's why Canada does multiculturalism better than any country in the world, because we're quite comfortable with joining mainstreams based on differences, except to the extent that those differences collide with the core of national values. So how do my identities inform my sense of justice? Yeah. My identities define me. I've never tried to hide from any of them. I was proud to be Jewish. And I came into the legal profession at a time when it was not a great thing to be. Many of the men I knew in the profession had either changed their names or didn't broadcast the identity. And I understood why. It was a kind of a disqualifying feature, and you certainly didn't trumpet it. So I had a baby CV when I first started. One of the things that I did was I was on the Lawyers Committee of the Canadian Jewish Congress. We met once a year. I put it at the top of my CV. I wanted people to know I was Jewish, right. take it or leave it. I was already different because I was a girl, and there weren't very many women, as the lawyers in the room know, when I started practicing law in 1972. And I was an immigrant, which made me somebody who had no sense of entitlement, none at all. I knew if I was going to succeed, it was going to be because of my hard work. And I, I wasn't to expect that it was going to be as it was for some people. Their father had been, their grandfather had been, and therefore they will be. Everything that fell my way was, really? Wow. Yeah, I'd love to. Which is the story of my career, the phone call. Remember Sammy Kahn, the, the songwriter? Yeah. Somebody said to him, what, what came first, the words or the music? He said, the phone call. <laughs> so that was my career. Do you want to do a royal commission? Sure. Do you want to run the labor board? Okay. I mean, I knew nothing about the ventures I was getting into. I took whatever cases walked in the door. I had chutzpah because what did I have to lose? I wasn't trying for anything wasn't trying to prove anything except that I was going to be a really good lawyer. But you were doing this at a time when, as you pointed out earlier, five women in your law school class, you were pregnant and working at the same time. And if, so if you cast your mind back to the last century when all of this was happening, uh, compared to now, where it is uh, much more normative, for women to be in law school, to be working at law firms, to have maternity leave, things like that. How different was it back then? Oh, I think it was easier. I honestly think it was easier. I didn't have any role models that said, this is how you dress, this is how you work, this is how you do it. And being married to a history professor, an academic, who just decided that he would work from home. There was always a parent there. And his salary went towards a housekeeper because neither of us wanted to take time away from the kids. Mm -hmm. So his income 
was there to buy time for us. I came home every day to have dinner with the kids and went back to work every night because I needed to be able to see them. But there was nobody saying this is what one does when one is a woman practicing law. Then it changed, and I wasn't scary. There was only one of me. So it was kind of an adorable mother of two. Look, she walks, she talks, she has babies, and she practices law. (laughs) But then when it became a group, it started to get, I think, a little more fearful for the hegemonic center. And it was, wait a minute, you're, you're moving away from the slice of the pie. And of course, women were saying, of course, we want access to the whole pie. Why do we have to have a slice? That all came later. But in the early days when I was practicing law, the judges smiled when I walked into the courtroom. When I was pregnant, I never lost a case. (laughs) They were terrified I would have the baby there if I lost. Good advocacy tool for anybody just thinking about it. For anybody? Um, (laughs) Nowadays? Yeah, I guess, I guess. But look, it obviously, it suited your temperament and your perspective on the world to be more of a trailblazer than a follower. I never thought about it. I wasn't afraid to go where no one had been. That's a trailblazer. Well, but that wasn't, there was no label attached to it. It was just, what have I got to lose? I, you know, I tell law students, I know now the preoccupation is, where am I going to end up? Right. If I'd spent a second thinking about where I was going to end up when I graduated from law school, I was just happy to be in law school. I was happy to be able to get a job. That was not easy. One of the people I had a really nice relationship. The interview went well. He called two or three times, and then he said, gee, Rosie, I'm really sorry. We've just never had a woman, and I'm not sure I'm ready for one. And I said, this was 1971, I get it. It's fine. And I did. I got it. And I moved on. Like, it wasn't, oh, my God, this is terrible. What's going to happen? I knew I would just have to segue somewhere else. But it became a lot harder, I think, for, for women when the expectations became cookie cutter. This is what one does when one right. is a lawyer. And, of course, nobody's a cookie cutter. So there was no accommodation anticipated for women with families. You almost were made to feel it's you want to be a partner, forget about a real life. You had the superwoman phenomenon. I never understood that. I had friends with food in the freezer for a week. Who knew how to cook? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was the burdens, yeah. the pressure on these women who were brilliant, as smart or as mediocre as any of the male colleagues were, but who had to constantly prove that they were serious about what they were doing, which meant don't talk about family, don't show pictures of your kids, don't talk about your husband. We don't want to hear stories about how they learned to walk. It was profession is profession. It was a a totally different culture. So I didn't have to endure that. And I just could be me all the way through. So what I come back to what I told law students, if you start your career planning where you want to end up. You will take no risks. You will be really boring. And you may or may not get to where you want to go because those decisions tend not to be up to you. 
On the other hand, if you fasten your seatbelt and just enjoy the ride, you may end up on the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> so I didn't plan any of it. I just, every step of the way, kept my fingers crossed. Mostly, to be honest, now I can tell you, because my kids are 49 and almost 46, because I didn't know any mothers who were practicing law, just imagine 1973 when we had our first son. I just hoped I wasn't making a big mistake and ruining their lives. I really was, never talked about it, except with my husband. So I, as a family court judge especially, for those seven years, day in and day out, having to decide whether to remove other people's children when I had two of my own, the hardest judging I ever did. Not the Court of Appeal, that was a joy. Not the Supreme Court, which was a joy and a lot of hard work. But there's nobody who can tell you how to raise your children so they'll be happy people. And because I didn't know anyone for whom it had worked, I think if you asked me what my emotional center was all those years, it was my family and my children. But I was working 24 hours a day and seven days a week, but I never missed a play. I never missed a school performance. What I missed was sleep. Right. I just, I didn't sleep, and we, we didn't socialize in those early years unless we had people over who had kids. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about, and I see the same thing with uh, young trainees in medicine and in psychiatry, this attempt to map out a 10 to 20 year trajectory to reach a goal. I want to ask how you feel about mandatory retirement, term limits, versus the American model of the justice deciding when to retire. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that the healthiest system is a mandatory retirement system. You know, you know going in, you have a sell-by date and Nobody is indispensable. No judge is indispensable. We all do what we can while we're there, and then it's somebody else's turn. The notion that you get to decide when it's time to go, although, in fairness, most of my colleagues left before they were 75, left the Supreme Court. But we knew we could stay till 75. But when I watch what goes on in the United States, the politicization of picking a moment to leave so that a particular party can replace you is just the antonym to judicial independence, the perception of the court being a body that was above partisan politics. Of course, once they get on the court, they are free to do whatever they want. But as you know right now, there is a clear sense of ideological compliance based on partisan selection. And it's so unhealthy. It's because what terrifies many Americans is partisan compliance with a vision of justice that is quite insular and anemic and rights removing rather than rights expanding, which has been the trend since World War II. I mean, if World War II taught us anything it was, you do not restrict rights, you protect them zealously. Every institution, legislatures, courts, the media. And this is a court on a tear to get rid of them. And it's not because 
of mandatory retirement or the absence of mandatory retirement, but it's because of the serendipitous decisions at various stages of people from particular parties to decide to leave. Well, how much confidence can the public have in a system that's selected that way? But the other part is they are the only system in the, in the world, other than not having a mandatory term limit or mandatory retirement age. They have elections. The whole purpose of having judges is to have an independent assessor of whether or not law is being complied with by the state or between two people. Judges are supposed to be above popularity, above public opinion, above approval by the majority in case there's an issue of a minority interest that should triumph. If you have to go back for approval to the majority, that to me is like a stake in the heart of independence. And yet, that's not going to go away because populism is the essence of the American dream. The people decide. And that's not what democracy is about in the Federalist Papers. It's certainly what, not, what democracy is not in any system. It's checks and balances. It's not always having the majority view. It's making sure that there's a check against unbridled majority wishes. So do you think that that reflects a more fundamental cultural divide between the United States and Canada or other countries? I just think we're so lucky in Canada because I think we have so far really protected core values that are represented in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I think the greatest moment in Canadian history right. is 1982 when we got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and constitutionalized the protection of rights. That was Pierre Trudeau's great gift to Canada and with it a Supreme Court that was going to fearlessly protect those rights, as they did. I mean, we stand on the shoulders of those first judges Bertha Wilson, Brian Dixon, mm. Jerry LaFerre, Claire Le Debay, later on, Beverly. Those judges who just took this brand new charter and said, okay, Canada, we're in. And they protected rights relentlessly. They struck down the abortion restrictions. They protected the rights of the accused. They protected affirmative, they promoted affirmative action. They defined equality as being uh, the protection of differences. I'm so proud of what the court has done. On the other hand, I have to tell you, I'm no longer smug. I take nothing for granted. That's the other immigrant thing. You take nothing for granted. You just, you just feel very grateful to do what you can to protect what you care about. I mean, the borders between countries, there's no plexiglass between right. to protect you from fumes that are coming up. Um, so I worry about some of the language that I hear. I worry about some of the cases and decisions that I read. Um, I worry about shifts, maybe. But on the other hand, I've done my bit, and it's none of my business anymore. So I'm going down to the States because it is my business what's happening down there because whatever they think about American exceptionalism, I'm a believer in it. Because if the United States is not healthy... The world is not healthy. And there's nothing you can do about that. Right. To pretend, as some presidents of the United States have done, we're just one of many, strikes me as unrealistic. The moral 
center of this global world requires the United States to be sane. And when it's not, when 60 million people vote for a vision of the United States that is mean and cruel, that's pretty scary. And so you see the rest of the world falling towards a majoritarian, this is the will of the people view, which squishes media rights, squishes the rights of the judiciary, squishes dissent, squishes minority protection. And where are we? We said never again after 1946. And it's again and again. And that terrifies me because we haven't developed an ability to say, stop. I couldn't believe the Ukraine. I couldn't believe the red line in Syria. I couldn't believe Afghanistan. I just couldn't believe what I was watching. And I was thinking, was this all an academic exercise? The declaration in 1948, the genocide convention? And we're just going to have a body of people, luckily including Bob Ray, who wag their finger at these countries and say, don't do it again? Write a thousand times, I won't kill any more people? What is this? So as somebody who came from that is steeped in law and justice, I don't understand a global world that says we have to all get along. It's not working. We're not getting along. And so you have the Uyghurs and Chechnya and Turkey and Poland, Hungary, and the United States. So what's the corrective? I don't know. I'm retired. (laughs) Well, look, Rosie, yeah, yeah, you have retired. I don't know. I used to think it was law. Education is too slow. Too slow. It doesn't work. The United States has education. Everybody's educated. Too late. (laughs) You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. One of Rosalia Bella's favorite quotes comes from the writer Anatole France. The law, in its majestic equality, forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. Getting rid of discrimination, that was at the heart of her great project as a jurist, both before and during her term as a judge on the Supreme Court of Canada. Equality, she believed, was not about treating everyone equally. It was about accommodating differences, creating a playing field that could be more level for everyone. And the role of the Supreme Court? 
to protect rights, to do the sometimes unpopular work of interpreting what the law actually means in practice. From the Stratford Festival, here's former Supreme Court Justice Rosalia Bella in conversation with David Goldblum. Rosie, let's pivot back to the... You're a psychiatrist. Analyze the world. Oh, please. <laughs> please. Okay, but listen, let me, let me ask you this question. Psychiatrists used to get in trouble for that kind of stuff. Okay, we had the Cold War. We got rid of the Cold War. We said, let's make friends with China. We made friends with China. We tried all those things because we had to. I think they were necessary. What is the approach that says, at what moment do you say, we tried? Be a parent. We tried, it didn't work, now we have to be tough. When are we going to get tough when people are dying? Why aren't we getting tough when people are dying? Well, because we don't want to lose lives. We don't want boots on the ground. No country wants boots on the ground. It's a sacrifice of life to save life. And that's a culture shift. And I understand it. So it's very complicated. So you have five minutes to tell me the answer. Well, I'm actually going to move on to some other questions, and I'm going to... I do have the answer, but I'm not ready to share it with uh, a large assemblage of people. But, Rosie, you know, now that you're off the Supreme Court, as, as you look back, within your time on the Supreme Court, how do you think it's evolved from the time you joined till the time you left? How is it at a different place than the place where you first arrived? I remember Steve Breyer coming to Canada once and talking about how they had a system where the junior judge at conference would be the one that answered the door when there were messages. Somebody had to, somebody was at the door. He said, for 11 years, I was the one who answered the door. And when I heard that, I marveled because I've had, in the 17 years I was there, I think I had 11 or 12 new colleagues. And the integration process, I don't know if you've, if you've ever experienced this, Sitting on the Court of Appeal is really wonderful and easy because it's three of you, and every week or two, it's a new, a new group. So the Court of Appeal joy of changing every two weeks the composition so that if there was somebody with whom you didn't get along, it wasn't forever, and it could be another year or two before you ended up sitting with that person. The Supreme Court of Canada is like having eight husbands. And, and if you know how hard it is sometimes to decide with one husband where you're going for dinner or what you're going to do on a holiday or what movie you're going to see, eight people with whom you have to make the most important decisions in the country on law who didn't pick you and you didn't pick them. So imagine the challenge of eight new people every year or two or three. So the fact that it works is really quite extraordinary. You have the tension between those who want to move the law towards, ever increasingly towards a broader vision, which was the court I first joined. And it was an ever-expanding trajectory towards more and more protection of rights. Hmm. So, uh, Rosie... But, 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 yeah. Let me tell you. No, go ahead. Mm. You're, the, you're the host. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I, because this follows on Canadian law, and we tend to think of Canadian law as encased and enclosed by our national boundaries. 
but there is a relationship between Canadian law and international law. Can you talk about how international law influences Canadian law and vice versa? International law was an arcane subject at the Supreme Court of Canada, partly because we're a passive institution. We only hear the cases that people bring to us. There weren't a lot of international law cases, but increasingly there were, because the very first section of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms says all of the rights in this charter are protected and guaranteed, except to the extent that any limitation can be justified in a free and democratic society. So there's an exhortation in the very first section, look around at the other democracies, see what they're doing and whether they're limiting rights. You don't have to follow them, but you need to be aware of what's going on in the rest of the world. So comparative law is in our DNA, our rights DNA. And international law goes along with that. We are part of a global legal system. Now, let me tell you a very interesting thing about international law that I found intriguing. My survival depended on international law. And Nuremberg, Mm -hmm. I, I was born when Nuremberg was going on in Germany. So that was my cauldron, right? When I think back, that's a rectification by judges of a great, the greatest injustice. So I started reading all of these treaties and laws and conventions that had been signed since World War II, all protecting human rights. And I thought, these aren't being followed anywhere. And then I had an idea. I wonder what's happened on the economic side. And so I found that the OECD, GATT, the Marrakesh Agreement, which established the World Trade Organization, guess what? You can be a doorknob and join the United Nations. But you have to apply to join the World Trade Organization. And they have a dispute resolution mechanism that, until Donald Trump, was complied with. And it struck me as so ironic that international trade law was respected by countries. International human rights law was whatever. I couldn't process how that worked. And then I could. Now, Rosie, look, it's, it's easy for us to feel daunted by all the markers of success in your professional career, the 39 honorary degrees and awards, and all of this I've learned through pretty deep research on Wikipedia. And, um, but as you look back now, are there, are there areas where you feel wow, I I should have done something very differently or sense of disappointment or failure? No. Okay, moving on. All right, well, look, Rosie, I really, uh, because I have no further questions for the witness, I'm going to uh, turn to some of the audience questions because we received quite a stack. And the first one is, any advice for folks just starting their legal careers as articling or clerking students? Don't take anybody's advice. (laughs) If I had listened to people and all of it was well-meaning, I would not have gone to law school because girls didn't. I would not have gone out on my own because nobody did, unless you couldn't get a job with anybody else. I would not have had 
children and practiced law. I would not, according to the Jewish social environment of the day, married a professor instead of a lawyer or a dentist. (laughs) I would not have chaired the Labor Board, the Law Reform Commission, a royal commission, which everyone said is going to be a career breaker because affirmative action is too controversial. I wouldn't have rendered the decisions that I rendered if I thought they would stop me from getting to the Supreme Court. I wouldn't have done anything if I'd listened to people's advice, and these were all people I knew cared about me. So do what feels right to you. You have to follow your own heart. I didn't know anyone who was like me, but I knew a lot of wonderful people, and I took great things from many of them from different fields. I mean, I learned about culture from Charlie Pachter. I learned about law from Harold. I learned about friendship from people like Steve Gouge and you and your parents. So I just learned great things from different people. But I never followed anyone's advice except my own and my husband's. Like, he is the key to everything I am and did. Right. So here's a very different question. Is there anything we ordinary Canadians can do to protect the judiciary? I assume the institution rather than... The judiciary? The the judiciary. A point more of them, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I remember in the 90s, I mean, these porous borders, in the 90s... Remember the exhilaration in Canada in the 80s when when the Supreme Court first started uh, implementing the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? It was really a a universal kind of exhilaration at the courage of the court, mimicking the, the Warren Court in the United States. And when I was in law school, 67 to 70, it was the Warren Court we looked to as kind of the inspiration rather than the Canadian Supreme Court that was immersed in deep constitutional questions about whether egg marketing boards were federal or provincial Mm. jurisdiction. (laughs) Whereas Warren was protecting Miranda rights, everything else. Segregate, getting rid of segregation. So I remember in the the 90s when we moved off this exhilaration because the world changed. You had Thatcher, you had Reagan, uh, you had a different press ownership in Canada. I don't have to name names, but it was a different press ownership, and even the existing uh, ownership had become much more conservative. So the things that they loved in the 80s, they started to really dislike in the 90s. And we started to get the uh, rhetorical fallout from people like Orrin Hatch and Tom DeLay, remember the exterminator from Texas, and suddenly words like activism and politicization crept into the dialectic in Canada. And nobody was speaking out on behalf of the judiciary. And part of that reason was, A, some people thought the judiciary didn't need protecting because if people didn't realize that's what judges did, then what was the point? Judges didn't want to get involved because they thought we're getting ourselves into a political mess if we do it. And so there was nobody really taking the side of the judges. 
I tried a few times, I started giving speeches all over the place about the importance of the judicial role in a democracy and independence and, all, and, and got a lot of editorials saying, shut up, what are you, don't do this, like you're wrong, that's not what judges are supposed to do. So it didn't stop me, but it you know, wasn't exactly an incentive for other people to join in. So the result was there wasn't a dialogue about the judicial role, there was a monologue and the people of Canada started to think, well, if there were another side, wouldn't we hear it? And so the press and the political environment combined to create this sense that the judges were trespassing on legislative territory and exceeding their responsibilities and being activist instead of, I don't know, inactive? I never understood the word. <laughs> It changed in the 2000s, and I think, I think it's different now. But the best protection of the judiciary is education. Understanding what we do, understanding that in 100% of the cases, 50% of the people in front of you think you got it wrong because they lost. The public is not going to agree with everything we do. But as long as they respect the integrity of the institution and I think they do in Canada, of the judiciary, because we are hearing the pros and the cons, I think that's the best way to protect the judiciary. Because I remember the drop in public opinion of respect for the judiciary in that decade when there was nobody defending it. Not the bar, nobody. There's a cost. You have to engage. Not judges, but Members of the public, for whom we exist, we're not there for each other, have to defend the ability of the institution to do its job free from political influence or from ideological uh, imperatives. But in order to defend it, you need to first understand it, right? Right, it's, edu it's education. It is the education. I mean, if I think back to my own education, I never learned anything about how uh, the judiciary, how the legal system even worked. And is that something that should be more incorporated into the curriculum of kids in elementary and high school to understand how their country functions? Yeah, obviously. But, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor started a whole iCivics program in the United States. There have been a lot of efforts to educate young people, and you still have the United States. So <laughs> there, there may be a limit, but I think Canada is different. I honestly think because we're a country now to whom other countries look, it's no longer the United States. Other countries around the world, other democracies around the world, look to Canadian law and Canadian jurisprudence. We still look to American academics. Mm -hmm. The scholarship is still, there's enough variety and there are enough brilliant scholars in the United States that we, we look to them. But judicially, I don't think any country looks to the United States Supreme Court anymore. They look to Canada. I'm mm -hmm. hoping... That continues, and it's because Canada's been brave, and it's, it's pushed the boundaries towards these increasing rights. So education helps, but it's no, it's no guarantee. Somebody's asked, how does one balance law versus fair? And is law fair in your experience and eyes? And is precedent hard to follow? And do you follow such more often than not? 
Well, let me start. When you said the word balance, I thought, oh, good. Somebody's going to ask about work-life balance and give me the chance to say there's no such thing. (laughs) But you didn't. I didn't. So all those poor women who struggle between, did I get my three hours this week of downtime? Like, I, I got news for you. There's, it's work all the time. And it's family all the time. And it's everything all the time. And if anyone has figured out how to balance it, let me know, because I have not. The balance between law and fairness is that there is no, there's, that those are not opposite sides of the scale. Law is the rules. Fairness is the application of those rules to a particular context, which is why lawyers and judges need to understand the world they are operating in to understand that there's no simple right answer, that there are values that attach. And to those who say, yeah, but doesn't that mean you have a bias? I say, I have a preference for liberal democratic values. I make no bones about it. And I am not embarrassed to stand behind my values, which are expansive, and try to protect more and not look at the word only as leading me. So law is words. Fairness is how those words apply to a particular context. My definition of fairness will be very different from somebody else's definition of fairness. As a judge, as long as I explain it, I've done my job. I may not be persuasive. But the notion that judges cannot have preconceived ideas is ridiculous. Do you want anybody over 10 in a democracy not to have opinions? So the key in a judge is recognize what your opinions are, because you have them, you should have them. Are you open in spite of them? Confront them before you walk into the courtroom and listen. Actually listen to what you're hearing. Open-minded is different from empty-minded. That's why fairness is something every judge strives for. And we succeed only to the extent that time judges us to have succeeded. So the agitations of the moment, the grievances of the moment, the views of the current won't judge us. I will be judged by how the world sees what I've done in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, if they even remember who I am. But it's not a static concept, right? except to the people who are in front of the court at that moment. Okay. Now, given the apparent normalization of uh, incivility and intolerance in these Trumpian times, what can we do, actually do, as responsible Canadian citizens to resist and roll back these increasingly terrifying tendencies? I didn't write this. I'm just (laughs) reading the card. Confront them. I think we're in a time when people are nervous about saying something they think will impair free speech. I see that in the United States, where you've got an environment of absolutism. You can say anything under constitutional protection, including give as much money as you want to any political party you want. You can also carry a gun. That's constitutionally protected. What a toxic mix. But the the ability to draw lines and make distinctions between acceptable speech and unacceptable speech, I am not embarrassed to tell you, I think some speech should not be tolerated. 
And I know that's not a popular view. I'm not a First Amendment absolutist. I think the difference in Canada, the way we have so far said hate speech is not okay, I say some speech is not okay. I would not for a moment resist calling out some of the things that are that are being said now and that people are nervous about saying because it means they're not seeing both sides. Sometimes there aren't two sides to an issue. There's a right answer. And the right answer may not be your answer, but there is a right answer. There is a transcendently right answer. And what is it? It's the one that allows the most scope without harming others. And that means some speech shouldn't be said because in the interest of protecting your right to speech, you are silencing vulnerable people who feel they cannot respond. This is not a group of people who feel particularly vulnerable. But you can silence people with their speech. It is not a marketplace of ideas. When you've got the powerful saying something, where are those who are vulnerable going to say their piece? How do you stop canceling people on the internet? Everybody's afraid of saying or doing anything because they're going to get canceled. What kind of a culture is that? That's free speech run amok. And I'm not in favor of it. And I, I think it creates the most unhealthy social environment in the United States, hopefully not yet in Canada, that we've ever seen. But we are tolerating the intolerant. And that's a very scary proposition. So, Rosie, in the spirit of curtailing free speech, uh, I'm actually going to draw this proceeding to a close because our time indeed is up. But I, I'm so grateful to you uh, for this really object lesson in being unafraid. Uh, unafraid personally and professionally and showing the way to so many others. So on behalf of everybody here, I really want to thank you for being here today. Thank you. On Ideas, you've been listening to Judge Rosie, former Supreme Court Justice Rosalia Bella, in conversation with an old friend, psychiatrist and mental health advocate David Goldblum. The program was recorded at the Stratford Festival. Our thanks to Julie Miles, Gregory McLaughlin, and Anthony Cimolino. Judge Rosie was produced by Philip Coulter. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can always get our podcast. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.